we will start in with our study. Heavenly Father, we once again come to you in prayer. We uh, appreciate and, and value and treasure the privilege that we have to talk to you and that you hear us as a personal God. Uh, I pray, God, for our hearts this morning that uh, we would read your word and that you would open our hearts to perceive wonderful things from your word. And may I be faithful and diligent to uh, be a true teacher and not a false teacher as we are about to learn. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. Things that you're liable to read in the Bible, they ain't necessarily so. Ira Gershwin wrote these lyrics for the musical Porgy and Bess for a character who wanted to cast doubt on the truthfulness of the Bible. Have you ever doubted that the Bible is true? Have you ever read a story from the Bible and thought, I don't know how that could possibly be? Or, that's definitely not what they taught me in science class or history class. Right? This morning, we continue our study in 2 Peter. I've asked you to open your Bibles to chapter 2. In chapter 2, the Apostle Peter turns his attack on false teachers of his day. In this chapter, he refers to several stories in the Old Testament to help him make his attack. And before we read chapter 2, let's review what we've learned so far in the last couple sermons in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the Apostle Peter writes about the prerogative of God in calling and gifting those whom he chooses about the Christian life in light of the truth of Jesus. And he writes about how Jesus told him he was going to be martyred. And knowing that was going to happen soon, he wanted to remind his readers of these wonderful truths, just as Shannon and Maria just reminded us of a number of truths that they want us to carry along with us. Peter writes about how he and others had in person I witnessed all of Jesus' ministry on earth. And unlike false teachers, they had not made up what he calls cleverly devised tales in verse 16, or another way to say that is intricately concocted myths. And he writes about how all true prophecies, and in fact, all of the Bible that we have here was written by men who were moved by God. The imagery is of being carried along like a sailboat is carried along by the wind. The scriptures, as we read elsewhere, are breathed out by God and written down by men. That is the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. In chapter 2, Peter fully turns his attention to the subject of false prophets and false teachers, where, uh, which he has referred to a number of times already. Now look with me at chapter 1, verse 20, just right at the end. I will read a few of the, uh, of the verses in chapter 2. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce dis destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Okay, so today we are not going to go deeply into the false teachers. When we gather again next Sunday, that's when we will really explore uh, false teachers in depth. Today, I want to give us some background so that we can understand Peter's statement in verse 3 that their judgment is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Today, I want to leave you with three takeaways. The Bible is true. False teaching is false. God is just. He will punish those who deserve it. But God is also gracious. He forgives those who don't deserve it. All right, so let's keep reading uh, verse 4, all the way through verse 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from, uh, sorry, the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Did you get all that? Did you grasp the point that Peter was trying to make? All those allusions to angels and Noah and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Totally clear? If not, that's okay. That's what today's sermon is all about. Today we're going to review these narratives from earlier sections of the Bible and familiarize ourselves with these stories. Peter just sort of breezes past them. But he's making an extremely important point. He has picked these these examples carefully. After all, he is writing scripture, so he himself is a man moved by the Holy Spirit speaking from God. That said, Peter doesn't spend a lot of time explaining these examples to his readers. It seems that he assumes that his readers know what he's talking about. But we may not. So let's slow down and analyze this very long compound sentence. The basic structure of the sentence is this. For if God did not spare angels but cast them into hell, and if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, and if God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah and rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how, if, 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 then, to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. So you can see the parallel structure of this big, long sentence, which goes from verses 4 all the way through 10, and also the parallelism where Peter says, not this, but that, right? If A, not this, but that, and if B, not this, but that, and if C, not this, but that, then D, not this, but that. 
So Peter takes three examples from history to make his point. They are all from the Old Testament. He assumes they are true. Gershwin may have written, it ain't necessarily so. But Peter says, it is so. They are lessons from history. And more specifically, they are lessons from redemptive history. That's why we have the title of the sermon today, Lessons from Redemptive History. Now, we're very familiar with political history. That is the sort of like, you know, the American Revolution started with the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, yada, yada, yada. The America became a great country. We've had 45 uh, presidents, right? Um, so, 46 presidents. Okay, and then, uh, so then we have political history. We also have economic history, right? What happens in the world of economics throughout, uh, you know, a, a particular period like the Great Depression, you know, followed by various different cycles of, of bull and bear markets, booms and busts. Uh, we might have church history, which is the history of the church ever since Jesus. Okay. Might have something like uh, the history of the civil rights movement. So we have Brown v. Board and then the Civil Rights Act of 1964, et cetera, et cetera. And we have Jim Crow laws and all of these different things. So we have lots of different kinds of history, but this is redemptive history. Redemptive history is about God's plan of redemption for fallen humanity. Okay? So if we look at the Bible, what you might notice is that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the very first two chapters of the Bible, everything is wonderful and perfect. Okay? This is, there, there has been no sin during that time. And then the very end of the Bible, right, so if the stage is a timeline, the very end of the Bible is the last two chapters of redemptive history, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, in which all sin has been wiped out once again, and everything is renewed and made whole again. So in between all of the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the arc of redemptive history. The arc of redemptive history that culminates in the pinnacle, which is the coming of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. So the entire project of this universe, as far as I can tell from the scriptures, is not about politics or even geology or any of the other kinds of history, but rather about redemptive history, which is to say there was a creation that was perfect and wonderful at the very beginning, and then right in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall, the fall of humankind. And ever since then, all of humanity has been fallen until Jesus comes on the cross, by which there is our salvation, and uh, we are now living in the 2,000 years since Jesus has died and, and risen, and then we, at some point, will get to the end in the book of Revelation, the arc of redemptive history, and at the very end, it is all a happy ending, okay? So, this is redemptive history. And the first lesson from redemptive history is that God cast out rebellious angels. All right. Now, let's have a little basic Bible teaching on angels. Angels are creatures created by God. They have not existed eternally like God, who has no beginning and no end. They were created sinless, but there was once a rebellion of angels led by Satan, apparently sometime before Genesis chapter 3, who 
was once the most powerful and beautiful of angels. These rebellious and fallen angels are more commonly known as demons, but the Bible sometimes continues to call them angels, as in verse 4, and we are supposed to understand from the context whether angels are still good angels or whether they are now demons or devils. On a side note, it is incorrect to say that someone we know, like a human being, is a fallen angel. Right? So we sometimes hear that, oh, like, you must be an angel fallen from heaven, and it's supposed to be a compliment. Trust me, that's not a compliment. Right? You're saying the person's a demon. Right? Or when somebody dies, right? what do we hear sometimes? Oh, heaven got a new angel today, or someone got his wings today. Isn't that sweet? But that's not actually true, because human beings don't become angels. We become saints. That's a, different, that's a whole different thing. When you believe in Jesus, you become a, a saint, not an angel. You don't die, go to heaven, and become an angel. Angels are already things, and they're not human beings. Okay? So, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, okay, there's the if, what Peter is saying that unlike us humans, angels have no possibility for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. God did not and will not spare them. Instead, the fate of demons is everlasting hell. Now, how did Satan fall? Now, let's look at a key passage in the Hebrew Scriptures, which we usually call the Old Testament. So keep a finger uh, in 2 Peter, and please turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 is probably right in the middle of your Bible. Okay, so, and I'm going to have a few key uh, verses here. Isaiah chapter 14. Starting in verse 3, we read some instructions from the prophet Isaiah to the Israelites. And he says, In that day you will take up, uh, sorry, in the day that the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that day you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay, so we're going to read some scripture that is clearly directed at Satan. But it also says right here that it is directed a taunt at the king of Babylon. Now, how can this be? That's because prophecy often comes in multiple layers. So you will have, and sometimes these layers aren't even revealed to us and were never understood by the people of God until the New Testament came along. So in this case, it's pretty obvious, so you can, uh, we can tell as we read that it's not just the king of Babylon that is being addressed here, but rather that it is Satan. Okay, so uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. This is Lucifer. This is where we get the name Lucifer, okay, which means light bearer or morning star. Lucifer comes from the Latin for light. Star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And here we see Satan's pridefulness, which is exactly what caused his downfall. He wanted to put himself 
on par or equal to or even above God who created him. And he was not up for that. Nevertheless, verse 15, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit, which is what uh, 2 Peter 2.4 tells us, right? And that is Satan's ultimate doom, okay? Another uh, uh, passage that we go to is in Ezekiel 28. So turn to your right in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 28, I mentioned earlier in the service that we would be going through the Bible today and uh, spending a lot of time flipping around. So here we are in the middle of that. Okay, Ezekiel 28, verse 11, we read this. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, that is to say Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Okay, again, we see that the direct address is to the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre was a port city of Phoenicia, a powerful seafaring people to the west and north of Israel, kind of like where uh, Lebanon is now, uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? When you study ancient history, the Phoenicians were uh, a very important part of history, even you know, bring, giving us the alphabet. So the king of Tyre, like the king of Babylon, is a human man. But again, we see that the prophecy is actually directed at Satan. Okay, so it says, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay, so human beings are born sinful, not perfect as a result of the fall. So this can't be to the king of Tyre. This is to an angel before his fall. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The king of Tyre wasn't in the garden of Eden. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. He was a beautiful creature. Okay? On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Angels, including Satan, are created beings, as I said. Verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Cherubs are a type of angel. The other type that we see uh, are seraphim. Uh, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. Again, human beings are born sinful, uh, but angels were created sinless. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of stones of fire. God has and will cast out the demons. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. That's his pride again. And I, that is to say God, cast you to the ground. By the multitude of your iniquities, that's sin, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You will be ter become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. This is all directed 
at Satan and his demons. And if you want to then look at the ultimate doom of Satan, uh, we turn to the very last book in uh, the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 in verse 3 says the following. Okay. This is, um, this is uh, not entirely literal. It's uh, metaphorical, so there's going to be some symbolism here uh, in this chapter. But nonetheless, what we read is this. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, that's Satan, having seven heads and seven ten ho- and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. So by this, we learn that a third of the angels also rebelled with Satan and fell with him. And the dragon stood before the woman, that's the nation of Israel, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That would be Jesus. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Okay, Jesus uh, died and ascended to heaven. Then the woman fell, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so she would be nourished uh, for 1,260 days, etc., etc. Then there was a war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels, okay, so that's fallen angels. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay. So, uh, that is, that is uh, verses 3 through 9. Okay. 3 through 9. And we have actually an eyewitness statement from none other than Jesus himself, who says in Luke 10.18, I was watching. I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus was an eyewitness of the events. Okay? So, ta- so remember our takeaways. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. And also, God is just. God is just, and he will punish those who deserve it. And our sermon series title is 2 Peter, God's Power and Promises. So he has the power to cast down demons. He is punishing those who deserve it. Okay, the second lesson from redemptive history is from the familiar story of Noah and the flood. So, God submerged the world, lesson two, but saved Noah. Okay, what does... Uh, Peter say, let's turn back to verse 5 in in 2 Peter 2. It says, For if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay? So there's several key phrases in this one verse. Number one, the ancient world was not spared by God. Number two, the ancient world was the world of the ungodly. Number three, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And number four, there were seven others. Okay, so what are we talking about here? First of all, the ancient world was a world of the ungodly. Now, if you were to turn to Genesis chapter 6, and let us actually turn to Genesis chapter 6. It's the first book in the Bible, and it's the sixth chapter. So if you were to turn to Genesis chapter 6, uh, I will, uh, as you're flipping there, I will give you some background. Okay, so 
God, at the beginning of redemptive history that we talked about, our timeline that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God made the universe and everything in it. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God said, let there be uh, the various different lights, and the earth, and the waters, and the, the plants, and the, uh, and the um, uh, animals. And on the sixth day, he created human beings. Now, human beings, like angels, were created sinless. But also, somewhat like angels, they were created with the ability to either sin or not sin. Clearly, a third of the angels chose to sin, and they are condemned forever. But Adam and Eve, our first parents, they chose to sin. And when they chose to sin, their human nature became sinful and fallen. And because this is how things work when you have offspring, offspring inherit your, your particularities, right, your attributes, Adam and Eve's fallenness gave rise to the fallenness of every human being who has been born ever since then. From the very first human being, Cain, all the way to us sitting here in this room. None of us has been exempt. We all possess, from our very conception, from the womb, a fallen, human, sinful nature. This human, sinful nature requires that we sin. We are not able not to sin. Okay? We cannot not sin. And that is very bad news, okay? So Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan the serpent, who, as we learned in the Ezekiel passage we just read, was in the garden with them. He deceived them. Essentially, he told them it ain't necessarily so, that what God had told them. They believed him instead of God, so they became fallen and sinful. That is how Genesis chapter 3 uh, un unwinds. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, they have at least done part of what God has commanded them, which is to uh, multiply and fill the earth. And, but because all of these people are sinful, this is what we read in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then we also read in verse 8 and 9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. This shows the grace of God on human beings because Noah was not sinless. When, he, when it says that he was blameless, it just means that he didn't carry blame. He was righteous in his time. That doesn't mean that he was actually righteous. It's because he found favor with God. And it's because Noah found favor with God that God, uh, that is to say, God gave him grace. That is what allowed Noah to be described as blameless and righteous. Okay? This goes to, uh, in verse 11 and 12, we read then that, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. We're not just talking about human beings, but the fall of man also made all of creation fallen and broken, which means that it eventually needs to be uh, reestablished, to be renewed. Okay? This goes to the second point, that the ancient world was not spared by God. Then we read in Genesis chapter uh, 6, verse 18, 
that, he, that although God says, I'm about to destroy the whole world with a flood, verse 18 says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Okay, so if you count, that's you, your wife, your sons' wives, there's three sons, and their three wives. Okay, that's eight. So Noah along with seven others. This is where uh, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter. And he also mentions this in, in 1 Peter as well, his first letter. Okay? So what I want to point out to you in verse 18 is that God says, I will establish my covenant with you. A covenant is a solemn promise. Okay? It's a solemn co- promise, and God is the one making the promises. Again, it's, it's God's power and promises. He has the power to do them, and he has the power to fulfill them. All right, then we read in verse 622, 7.5, 7.9, and 7.16, all of what Noah did to obey. What did he say? It basically says in, in all those four verses, one, some version of this, which is, thus Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Okay? All that the Lord had commanded him, that is what Noah did. Okay? Now, if we were to turn to Hebrews 11:7, okay, in the New Testament, okay, Noah is another part of the lesson by the writer of Hebrews. And Hebrews 11:7 says, "By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness." which is according to faith. Okay, so righteousness does not come from things that we do in righteousness. It comes from faith. That is what the writers of Hebrews is trying to make the point of, is that we are not saved by things that we do. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. When we believe God, when we do according to all that the Lord has commanded him, then that is evidence of being saved by faith. And of course, we cannot perfectly do all that is commanded of us. We are going to continue to sin because we have sinful natures, which is why we need Jesus, which is why we need the good news of Jesus. But we can see that as a result of Noah's faith and the grace and the found favor that he has with God, he is able to obey. So obedience is primarily a condition of the heart before any action takes place. Okay, we like to say that we, like to, we should obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Because just obeying on the outside with a, with, a, with a bitter or disturbed heart is not really obedience. Obedience comes from a happy heart. Okay? Now, according to Peter, Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. In Genesis 5.32, Noah is lifted, listed as 500 years old. And in 7.6... We reread that Noah was 600 years old when the flood started. So apparently, it took 100 years to build the ark. Sounds sort of fantastic, doesn't it? It ain't necessarily so, you might be tempted to say. But it is, in fact, so. It took 100 years to build the ark. So in addition to building the ark, you can imagine that Noah was preaching salvation to everyone else. He was hammering and sawing and whatnot, saying, Believe God! He is sending a flood! You will all die unless you accept the gift of salvation. Get on the boat. But only his sons and their wives believed him. 
The rest of Genesis 7 is details of the flood. Then we get to the results in uh, verse 721. <coughs> God did indeed not spare the ancient world. He, but he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. But look at verse uh, 8.1. 8.1 says, but God remembered Noah. Okay? These are two beautiful words, but God. In the New Testament, again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, says that we too were dead in our trespasses and sins. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the people of Noah's day. Verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, saved us by sending Jesus to die for us. So remember our takeaways. The Bible is true. False teaching is false. God is just. He will punish. He has punished those who deserved it, the ancient world, the ungodly. But God is gracious. He forgives those like Noah and his sons and therefore wives. He forgives those who don't deserve it, and he rescues them. All right, keep your finger in Genesis. We're going to come back there really quickly. Let's go back to 2 Peter and read the next few verses. Lesson three from, uh, of our lessons from redemptive history is in 2 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8. God ravaged Sodom and Gomorrah, but rescued Lot. Verse 6. And if... God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Okay. So, what do we take from this? God destroyed uh, God, Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone from heaven. God did this at least partially as an example to the ungodly, it says right here. It also says that God rescued Lot, and God considers Lot righteous. This passage calls Lot righteous three times, which is probably a little bit of a surprise to you if you have read this account. So let's go back uh, to Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 18 now. Genesis chapter 18. Now in Genesis chapter 18, in verse 20, we read this. The Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Their sin is exceedingly grave. What is the sin that God is talking about? Well, among other things, it is the sin of homosexuality. Let's just be really, really clear about this in as few words as possible. Homosexuality is sin. God is going to punish all sin, including homosexuality, unless we come to God begging for mercy through Christ our Lord. Now, the LGBTQ TIA++ revolution is in full swing. Okay? It is very fashionable to be on the LGBTQ plus bandwagon. 
And most recently, the T, standing for transgender, has really been gaining ground among who? The cultural elite, the policymakers, large companies. Okay? We have the Olympics coming up in which transgender athletes are going to compete. We have uh, high school so-called champions who are biological males who have won the girls' championships. This is all under the color of law and totally legal. Now, some people identifying as Christians want to say that homosexuality and transgenderism are not sinful. Okay? They read the passages in here and they say, well, that doesn't mean what it says, we, uh, what we think it says it means. Okay? In other words, they're saying it ain't necessarily so, which is just quoting Satan in the garden. Right? Speaking of false teachers, that is a false teaching. The Bible clearly does say that homosexuality and related sins are, in fact, sinful. Now, other people, not Christians, are actually more clear on this matter. They know that the Bible considers homosexuality sin. They know that the God of uh, the Bible is against homosexuality. Okay? And so they are against the God of the Bible. Now, that's at least intellectually honest. But either way, rejecting the word of God, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, is very dangerous. Rejecting the word of God as he has revealed in scripture is dangerous. It is bad for us. Okay? We act against our own best interests when we reject what God tells us in his word. We ought not to do it. What we ought to do is to read, to understand, to trust and believe. Now let's be clear. Bigotry is real. So bigotry against LGBTQ, our LGBTQ neighbors, is a real thing. And we Bible-believing, gospel of Jesus Christ people are usually considered bigots simply for the fact that we believe that sin of this nature is in fact sin. Now, I would argue that simply believing that sin is sin is not in itself bigotry. Right? If bigotry is defined as thinking of someone as lesser or treating someone as lesser because of the way that they are. Right? Unfortunately, some Christians might actually be guilty of the sin of bigotry. Okay? So bigotry is wrong. Bigotry is itself sin. So we ought not to be bigots. But if I have a homosexual or transgender friend or relatives or neighbors, I am not going to treat them with bigotry. I am not going to treat them any differently than anyone else in sin. Okay? I am going to believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation of all who believe. And I am going to believe that faith comes through hearing. And so therefore, I am going to believe that they need to hear the gospel. And where's the gospel going to come from? It's going to come from my lips. I am going to share the gospel with them. That Christ died for our sins and that whoever believes in him and turns from their sins shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, believing the gospel and sharing the gospel with our sinful neighbors is not bigotry. It's love. It's saying Sin is going to kill you, 
and the only cure is the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't hate you. I am not bigoted against you. I love you. I love you enough to tell you about Jesus. And here's a sobering thought. If we don't tell our perishing friends and so-called loved ones about the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then maybe we don't love them enough. So the rest of chapter 18 is Abraham negotiating with God. Okay, uh, What he says is that Abraham, in verse 23, says, Abraham comes near and says, Will you, God, indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he says, suppose there's 50 righteous men uh, in there. Okay, Genesis chapter 23. And 26 to 32 says, uh, says is, this, is this ongoing thing, which is Abraham being very gracious and loving and caring about his neighbors. Are you going to wipe out the whole city if you just find 50 righteous men? And God says, no. And he says, what about 45? And God says, no. And what about 40? And God says, no. And what about 30? And God says, no. And what about 20? And God says, no. And what about 10? And God says, if there's even just 10 righteous people believe in me in the whole city, then I will spare the whole city on their account. Okay, God is gracious. God is gracious. God is gracious. But then, in, verse, in chapter 19, we read about the angels who come to Sodom. Okay? And the two angels said to Lot, okay, so now this is Lot, his, Abraham's nephew, and he says, bring a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy the place. Very next verse. Verse 14, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. What does that sound like? It sounds like Noah preaching righteousness to the people outside the ark. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Ah, you can just imagine the people outside the ark, but also the people in Sodom, uh, the very sons-in-law who do not believe. Right? Now, God wants us to be saved. But if you didn't listen, then you can only blame yourself. Because the responsibility lay with the sons-in-law. Okay? Verse 16, even then, uh, Lot himself hesitated. And so the angels dragged Lot and his family out of, out of Sodom. Literally just took their hands and dragged them out. For why? Because the compassion of the Lord was upon him. Again, God is gracious. He does not want people to perish. Verse 19, uh, Lot recognizes this, and he says to them, the angels who are acting on behalf of God, he says to them, Now behold, your servant, that is to say himself, your servant has found favor in your sight, just like Noah found favor, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. So that is, that is uh, what has gone on in Genesis chapter 19. Now, um, I'm going to do some editing on the fly because it's running a little bit late. So I am actually going to save lesson four from redemptive history for next week. But there's an interesting postscript, which is very, at the very end of Genesis chapter 19. 
okay? So Lot has escaped with his two daughters, and their fiancés didn't want to come, so they're destroyed by fire and brimstone, right? So then the two daughters do some crazy incest stuff, uh, and they say, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. They were pregnant, and the firstborn daughter bore a son, Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger daughter also bore a son, Ben-Ami, and the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. That is to say, the Ammonites. Okay? Now, uh, if you want to do some Bible study in between uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, you can read uh, Numbers 22 through 24 and, uh, and see, the, um, and see the, uh, the story of Balaam. Um, and what you might bear in mind, but we'll cover this next week, don't worry about it, is that we will see that the Moabites and the Ammonites have a really big part to play in the next story, okay, in the next story. So let's go back to 2 Peter. Back to 2 Peter, verse 6 again. And he says, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those, like our LGBTQ friends, who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, really, righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so when Peter writes oppressed, uh, Peter means that uh, he was exhausted by wearing down. Oppressed means exhausted by wearing down, and it was deeply troubling to his soul. Okay? Sensual conduct, sensual means outrageous behavior. Outrageous behavior. And if you read uh, uh, chapter 19, you would, you would see how outrageous it was. Okay? Uh, unprincipled. Unprincipled means unrestrained without restraint, without lawful standards at all. Okay? For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented, that is to say, like, tortured, okay, by, day after day by their lawless deeds. Again, lawless is like unprincipled. It's without lawful standards. Without lawful standards. Now, I want to get to these uh, three instances of righteous. Was the law really righteous? I mean, this is... When you read the account, you think that Lot is just not a good man. Lot decided to live in Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place, which was at best unwise, right? And clearly, Lot's wife had been captured by living there. She was the one, infamously, who looked back in, in yearning and was turned into a pillar of salt, okay? Uh, Lot offered up his virgin daughters uh, to be ravished okay, by the crowd, of unprincipled men. Uh, Lot hesitated. He dragged his feet when it was time to leave. Uh, later on, he got drunk and uh, committed, you know, incest sin. And yet, the Apostle Peter, in the Scriptures, calls him righteous three times. Okay. So how is he righteous? Well, the basic fact is that Lot did believe God. He did listen to God. He trusted God. Not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. But what can be said about Abraham in Genesis can also be said about Lot. And the Apostle Paul talks about this quite a lot in his letters, uh, particularly in Romans. But he says, he trusted God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
When we trust God, and we will never be able to trust him perfectly, let alone obey him perfectly, but when we trust in God, God counts us as righteous. Okay? God is very gracious and merciful to do so. So God is righteous. He is also gracious. Let us re- uh, remember our takeaways, our three takeaways. The Bible is true. False teaching, on the other hand, is false. God is just. He has and will punish those who deserve it. But God is also gracious. He was gracious to Noah. He was gracious to Lot. He forgives those like us who don't deserve it. So, as I said, we're going to uh, skip over our fourth lesson from redemptive history. I'm going to uh, go over to slides here. Okay, so going back to 2 Peter uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say this. Okay, so if A, if B, if C, and then there's this last little bit in, in chapter, uh, in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Okay, we have talked a lot about the righteous, Noah and Lot, having faith and believing God, and that belief in God is counted to them as righteousness. It is not sinlessness and purity that qualifies them as righteous. It is God's grace given to them as faith that makes them righteous. And obedience and turning away from sin is not the basis of righteousness, it's the fruit of righteousness. So the unrighteous are those who have not found favor with God, those whom God allows to continue to have an evil, unbelieving heart, and as a result, they continue in their evil, unbelieving sin. They will be punished. Peter's logic is that God was capable of punishing angels and people in the past, and that he is capable of punishing people in the future, in the coming day of judgment. Looking ahead, all of chapter 3 in this letter is about the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Okay, But especially, verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires. Now this would be like people before the flood, whose every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This would be like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, men wanting to do unnatural things with men. This would be, uh, although we didn't talk about this, how Balaam told the Moabites to seduce the Israelites. In Peter's day, he was warning the church about false teachers and their lusts. And in our day, our society is increasingly decadent and corrupt, isn't it? talks about those who despise authority. This word authority in the original Greek is a form of the word Lord when the Bible speaks of the Lord Jesus. So despising authority is rejecting the lordship of Lord Jesus. And if you're rejecting the lordship of Jesus, then you are also rejecting his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness as well. Okay? But look at verse 9. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Oh, 
oh, it would be so easy to pat ourselves on the back and call ourselves the godly because we don't sin the way those other sinners sin, right? Especially our LGBTQ plus neighbors. It would be self-righteous, though. It would be self-righteous of us to say, God's going to rescue us from temptation because we're so godly. We are not godly in the sense of being good and sinless the way that God is. When Peter refers to the godly, he is referring to those who are with God as opposed to those who are like God. Okay? Of course, there is some element in which we are growing to be more like Jesus as the days and the weeks and the years go go on. We are hopefully growing in holiness as time goes on, but we are still sinful. The only reason that we are with God is because God, out of pure mercy and not out of anything that we have done or anything that we are, chooses us, as it says in chapter 1, to be with him. God has called some of us wretched human beings his own, and God will protect his own from destruction. And that is what the word temptation means here. It's more in the sense of a trial that leads to destruction. Okay? So a good paraphrase of this verse, verse 9 says, would be, God knows how to rescue those he chooses to be with him from the trial that would lead to destruction. Okay? So all of that to say, friends, please come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and be saved. It's like Lot telling his sons-in-law. It's like Noah preaching righteousness and salvation to those outside the ark. It is like us, hopefully, talking about Jesus and his saving grace, his death on the cross, which redeems humanity in this ark of redemptive history. It's like us sharing the good news of Jesus with our friends and neighbors. And if you haven't believed, if you don't believe, you are invited and, in fact, begged, just like the angels begged Lot to get out of Sodom. You are begged. You, I am begging you now to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and be saved. God is gracious and powerful, powerful to forgive. So let's review again once more the takeaways. The Bible is true. False teaching is false. Peter and the other writers of the New Testament assumed the Bible is true. And more importantly, Jesus knew the Hebrew scriptures were true and referred to them all the time. So if Jesus assumed that the Bible is true, then we can certainly say it's not, it ain't necessarily so. It is so. It is so. We read chunks of the Old uh, Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures today, and we should follow their lead. God is just. God is just. He will punish those who deserve it. We all know that there are sins that cry out for justice and punishment. Okay? God is taking care of it. Okay? God has done it in the past. He will do it in the present, and he will certainly do it in the future. But that leads to our third takeaway, because we also are the ones whose sins cry out for justice and punishment. We might see other people saying, God, where is your justice? Why don't you punish those evildoers? But we ourselves are the evildoers, and our own sin condemns us. But, but God, God is gracious. He forgives those who don't deserve it, including us. 
If we got all the justice we deserved, we would all be in hell. Thank God for his glorious grace. We don't deserve to be forgiven, and we can never deserve to be forgiven. But through Christ, who bore our sins on himself on the cross, we are offered forgiveness at no cost to ourselves. We ought to accept that forgiveness. We ought to cherish that forgiveness. Then we ought to spread that forgiveness, of, uh, that message of forgiveness to everyone we know. It is such good news. Such good news has been delivered to us. We ought to proclaim this good news to everyone we know. And speaking of proclaiming the good news, that is what communion is to us. The scriptures say that when we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the good news of Jesus. So let us take this little cup and peel back the cellophane and uh, take this little wafer. I'm looking forward to the day when we don't have to eat these, but like some other different wafers. But it doesn't matter because it's just a symbol. So we're going to take these and we're going to take them together. Let's take And then, brothers and sisters, let's take the cup. Jesus said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. God gave Noah a covenant, and a covenant needs to be sealed with blood, okay? A sacrifice of an animal. Jesus is our sacrifice, and he spilled his blood for us. So let us take the cup. Because as often as you eat the bread and take the cup, Jesus said, you proclaim his death until he comes back, which is our only hope. So, dear, uh, dear friends, let us now pray. Uh, we'll call the music team up, Katrina and Madison, back up to lead us in musical worship. And then uh, I'll have a couple more announcements right before the end of service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, that you are a powerful God that you are a holy God, that you have given us your word, and your word ought to be obeyed. It ought to be trusted. We ought not to say it ain't necessarily so, but we ought to trust and obey the things that you have told us. But we know also, dear God, that we are not capable of perfect trust, and we are certainly not capable of perfect obedience. And so therefore, God, we thank you that we are also subjects of your grace and that you have sent the Lord Jesus who lived a, a perfect life that we could never live and who died on the cross and you put our sins on him and you count us as righteous because of his righteous life, his sinless life that we could never live. So we thank you, God, for these things. We lift up these songs of blessing and of praise and of worship to you. We sing the gospel unto you in the name of Jesus.